Welcome to the Find Creative Expression podcast, conversations about art and creativity. I'm your host, Sarah Crawford, author, musician, and playwright. You can find the show notes and other information at findcreativeexpression.com. And let's get going. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the Find Creative Expression podcast. Coming up a little later, I have an interview with playwright, dramaturg, and educator Adaye Moon. Adaye is literally one of the coolest people I know, and I feel like he's always doing a million things in the theater world, so I'm super excited that I got to interview him. We had a really cool conversation, so stick around for that. I was going to do a bonus episode last week with Steve from the YouTube channel The Lawn Gnome, and I'm still going to do that interview next week, but on Tuesday of last week, I had to put my cat Frank to sleep. So needless to say, I was a total mess and in no shape to do an interview about creative process. (laughs) I live by myself, and I'm a self-proclaimed crazy cat lady. So I previously had two cats, Frank and Julian. Julian is still around, and, you know, they were there for me through so much. Breakups, divorce, moving around, depression, pandemic, all of it. You know, they're they're my family. Uh, Frank was almost 14 years old, and he had kidney failure, and a heart murmur, and his body was basically just shutting down. So I took him to the vet about two months ago, and I was basically told that he was near the end then. So I was devastated, but then he bounced back, and I thought, you know, the special diet and the medicine was really helping. But then on Monday of last week, he started acting like he was in pain, So I took him to the vet, and his levels were basically the exact same that they were two months ago. And he was clearly in a lot of pain, so I didn't want to drag it out and have him suffer any longer. So I know I did the right thing, but it was still really hard. So all of that is relevant to creativity, because as I was waiting for it to be time for the vet to come over... We were lucky enough to actually have her come here and put him to sleep in my apartment. So as I'm sitting here waiting for the vet to come, I was sitting on the floor in my office next to Frank, and I was so emotional, and I read a poem. And this was the first poem that I've written since, like, 2017. And the first real thing I've written at all (laughs) in months, really. Like, that wasn't a journal entry or a blog post for someone else or web content or any of that. So since then, the floodgates have kind of been opened, and I have written a poem almost every day. And I decided I'm going to re-release my first two collections of poetry, as they're both out of print right now. And I'm going to work on a third collection of poems about loss. Not just actual loss, but the loss of relationships, the loss of childhood, the loss of dreams, all different kinds of loss. (laughs) I know that sounds uplifting, but ultimately... I believe you never actually lose anything. 
And if you love a person or an animal, I think they leave an imprint on your heart and they stay with you whether you're seemingly separated or not. So the idea behind this collection of poems is that eventually, by exploring all the different kinds of loss through poetry, I will be able to take the reader to that conclusion as well. Now, I'm sure some of you are probably wondering what's happening with my vampire sequel. So I've decided to kind of shelf that project for a while and write what I feel I need to write. I've been trying to approach writing as a career, and I think I was pressuring myself to be like all of these successful indie authors I see who write in popular genres. They churn out like five or six books a year, some of them even more than that. But, you know, I just don't think that I'm that kind of writer. Now, don't get me wrong. I freaking love vampires, like all of them. Dracula, Anne Rice, Vampire Diaries, Twilight, Lost Boys, just all the vampires. But I'm just, you know, I'm not in a place to really write about vampires right now. What I really need to do is write these poems about loss so that I can find some peace with the grief that I'm dealing with right now. And so that hopefully I can maybe help other people with their grief. Now, I do plan to return to the vampires at some point in the future, but I feel like it'll be easier because it'll be more organic and not just me pressuring myself to write something. So I know a book of poems about loss is not going to be a big seller, but I think I'm in the process of changing my approach to writing. I'm not going to worry about writing being my career or writing making me money. I mean, I definitely still plan to write, but I'm just taking the pressure off of myself to write what I think people want to read and just write what I need to write. And if that makes money, great. But if it doesn't, that's fine too. Like sharing it with the world is really more important to me than money. So maybe I'll do some pay what you can kind of things on my website or something. So it's funny that I'm talking about all of this because a diet really helped me when I was writing my play This Bends. And that was a story that I desperately needed to tell, especially at that time. And I think as an educator and a mentor, he has a real talent for helping writers to find the stories they really need to tell. And I actually brought that up in the interview, so keep listening to that. As far as my career goes, I'm going to be actually launching Find Creative Expression as not just a podcast, but a whole brand. I always thought my calling was to create art, and I definitely think that's a part of it, but I think a larger part of my calling is to use art and creativity to help others. So that's really what that brand is going to be about. And I'll get into that more in the next episode. All right, this intro has been a little longer than usual, but I had a lot to say. So thanks for listening. But let's get into the interview because, like I said, Adaye is super cool. And I want y'all to hear what he has to say. 
everyone. I am here with Adaye Moon. Adaye Moon is an Atlanta-based playwright, dramaturg, director, and educator. He is the Associate Artistic Director for Theatrical Outfit and Artistic Associate with Found Stages Theater and a co-founder of the Performance Collective Hush Harbor Lab with a focus on developing new plays from unique and diverse voices. He also co-hosts a podcast called Old Heads, which is a deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curtain. Welcome, Adai. Hey, sir. How's it going? <laughs> it's pretty good. Your your bio is like much longer than like most people I've had on here. So like oh. you're like legit. <laughs> I'm just old. How about that? I'm just old. <laughs> um, so, so how did you get into playwriting? Oh wow! Um, so I I was an art school kid. Um, I went to a performing arts high school, Douglas Anderson School of the Arts in Jacksonville, Florida. And actually, my my major was visual art and theater. Uh, then when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Like that, that's what I had said in my mind because it combined both of those things. Right. But, I, but I'd always, you know, been in theater and I always done acting. And so I started acting, you know, once I got to college, I, I kept acting. And something happened where I realized that there weren't at that time um, a lot of plays that spoke to my personal experience. Um, right. So I started writing them. <laughs> and, and so me and a bunch of friends, uh, when, when I was in um, undergrad, we started creating these plays and producing these plays on campus. And so that's, that's when um, playwriting started for me. That's awesome. It's just like, yeah. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. <laughs> so how did you get into dramaturgy? But actually, can you explain what that is for those of us who may not know? I mean, I... I I know what it is, but I can't like really probably explain it as well as you can. <laughs> and, and it's and it's and it's hard to explain. So so you know, uh, everyone does dramaturgy. I mean, uh, actors do it, um, uh, directors do it, um, designers do it. I mean, dramaturgy itself is really about analyzing text and try and finding ways in for the artists who are engaged in in the text. Now. Um, I mostly focus on new play development dramaturgy, which mm-hmm. is really um, helping the playwright, asking the playwright questions to guide them towards um, the play that they want to write. So right. uh, in a lot of ways, the new play development dramaturg is sort of like the first audience um, for a play while it's in development. And essentially what we do is just really Ask a, ask a lot of questions. <laughs> ask a lot of questions and really help the playwright clarify what they're trying to do with the piece. Right. So, so how did you get into doing that? Or is that is that like something that was kind of organic that you just kind of started yeah, uh, doing? You know, when I was in grad school, like the whole, like, like any sort of like do play development work, workshop process involves drama, dramaturgy and dramaturgical skills. And so after, after I got my MFA, I, um, I, I came back to Atlanta and I started working at Horizon Theater as a literary manager. And a part of that job, other than reading plays and helping to choose a season, uh, was that they had a new play development um, program that happened during the summers, um, the New South Festival. And so that was really the first time outside of grad school that I had a chance to work with new playwrights as their work was being developed. So. 
I just kind of slipped into it. Right, right. That's, that's cool. So, so you did. You received your MFA in playwriting from Ohio University, the mm-hmm. Masters of Fine Arts. For those yeah. of you who may not know. Um, so, how did your MFA help you to develop your voice as a playwright? Oh, that's interesting. Because uh, so, so my 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 OU experience was my second attempt at grad school. I <laughs> I went <laughs> to the University of Illinois for a year after undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say never go to grad school right after undergrad because I didn't know what the hell I was going to grad school for. I just, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I graduated. I don't know what to do. Let me just go to grad school. And so, but it was a great experience. And I learned a lot and actually made a lot of contacts with, with Chicago theater folks, which really helped my writing career. But um, it, it was when I came back to Atlanta and started doing an apprenticeship at a small theater company called Barking Dog. And I really started working on trying to be a working theater artist that I realized why I would want to go to grad school. And mm-hmm. it was mainly, I think what grad school does what, what, and what MFA programs do especially is that it gives you the time and the space, both the physical space and the head space to really work on your craft. Right. And you don't really get a chance to do that much in the real world. <laughs> so so that that's definitely the greatest thing that the MFA gave me. And, and since I'd been working in the theater before I went back to get my MFA, I sort of knew exactly what I wanted from the experience. And what I basically wanted was time to work on new work and access to performance spaces to self-produce work. Right, right. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's. I feel like there's all this kind of debate going on right now about like the MFA and and whether you need the MFA to be a writer or not. You know, and yeah. I mean, yeah, I have I'm, an I'm, MFA, so you know, I'm yeah, not. You, I'm not hating, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't need it to be a writer. But um, I think it really, really helps, um, especially because you know, few people make a living as a writer coming right out out, out of any program, and so. Right. What the MFA does is that it gives you the credentials that, you know, if you like teaching, you can also teach. And I happen to really enjoy teaching. So, um, and that was really the part of the reason why I went back and got the MFA. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I I will ask you more about teaching later. (laughs) But, um, uh, because you're really good at teaching. Um, Oh, thank you. You are. No, but I'll, (laughs) I'll get into that later. Okay. So you were you were the director of museum theater for the Atlanta History Center for almost mm-hmm. a decade. Oh gosh. And <laughs> some of your plays for the History Center include Four Days of Fury about the Atlanta race riots of 1906 and The Order of Freedom which what recounts the Juneteenth story through fictional characters. Mm-hmm. So what is your creative process like when writing a play about historical events? Yeah. So, so you know, writing, it, it's the funny thing about that job and the fact that I had it so long and I thoroughly enjoyed all nine and a half years of it um, was that I was always that playwright who swore they, they would not write historical plays. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent fucking nine years doing it. So, um, <laughs> uh, so, so, so for me, uh, like I love to read, period. Like anything, novels, right. you know, history books, comic books. I'm I've always been a reader. Like that's that's my thing. So the research aspect is what really jazzed me about doing that work. And and for me, 
it's really just a, about doing the like doing the hard kind of academic research and and just jotting down notes as you go. And somewhere along, the, and I can't even explain how it happens, but somewhere along the way, there there are characters or events or situations that, that just kind of step out. Yeah. And uh, and so you let them step out, you stand back, you you observe them from a distance, and it's like, okay, this is a story about this event that wants to be told. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, when it comes to writing historical things, it's about the hardcore academic research first. And then from that, uh, the story eventually comes to me. And, usually, and it doesn't usually take long either. Yeah. Yeah, that that's understandable. Like, because, yeah, I feel like, you know, when you're doing that research and you're reading about historical events, you know, you just get all these ideas and inspiration. Like, it, you mm-hmm. know, it reminds me of, uh, the story of Lynn manuel Miranda, you know, reading right. the autobiography of Hamilton, or not the auto- autobiography, but biography. And he, and then he's like, oh, this is a hip-hop musical. <laughs> like, right, exactly. It's just like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I think that's awesome. So, so I first met you in 2008 at Horizon Theater, where you helped me as I was writing my play, The Spends, which I think is one of the most, like, genuine and honest things I've written such a lovely play and oh thanks uh but you really have like a talent for helping writers to tell the stories that they most need to tell so I was wondering if there was a mentor or teacher you know in your past who kind of helped you do that in that way yeah I had a couple of really kind of great teachers at different points in my life so when, when I was in high school um uh there was a creative writing te- or, or an English teacher named Jackie Jones Jacqueline Jones um, and years later, when I went back to my alma mater to teach, uh, for four years, she became my colleague. She actually hired me. So that was really interesting. But, um, uh, I think I'd always written, but she was probably the first person to, to, to tell me that I was a writer. Right. And, and I took them, and I took her seriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> and 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 so yeah, so 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 Jackie was a big influence. And then when I got to undergrad, um, I had some really great theater teachers, um, Joan Lewis, uh, who who was kind of legendary old school black theater teacher, uh, Car- Carol Mitchell Leon, who was also a local legend, and Gary Yates. And um, you know, I was I was a little I was a little you know again I was I was this little art school kid with a chip on my shoulder, and they tolerated my my foolishness. <laughs> And, and actually really, really, you know, encouraged me to not only take the the craft of being a theater artist seriously, but also, um, you know, to kind of embrace the fact that, at least for me, um, teaching and sharing that skill is a part of my calling as well. So I, I learned that from, from those four. Right. So, so how did you decide to become an educator? Like, was it just kind of something that you looked was, at them and saw them doing and wanted to try? Yeah, it, I, I mean, some of it was that. Um, also knowing the realities of being a theater artist, I'm like, I gotta eat. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't necessarily wanna wait tables, even though I was a barista for like seven years. Um, so, right. so, so that was really it. I was like, you know, theater work for the most part is temp work. And I figured until um, 
I was in the position where I could make a living writing, which I was not able to do until I started the History Center, actually. Mm -hmm. um, teaching is something that would keep me in aligned with, with my artistic craft, but also help me pay my bills. So, yeah. 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 So, so what's the most like rewarding thing about being an educator? Oh, so um, teaching, I think it, it keeps me energized because there's nothing like working with young writers and young artists who are just so eager and so excited and so like not jaded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, that, and, and that keeps me energized and it keeps me excited about doing the work. But also, um, and I tell my students this, I'm like, you know, teaching is also kind of selfish because I think the more that I have to teach the craft, the deeper my understanding of it becomes. Right. Um, and so I, I, I get as I get as much from it, if not more for from it than the students do. Yeah, no, I, I found that, too, because I've, I've taught some creative writing classes, mm -hmm. um, mostly just like online. But but even in that experience, it's like teaching other people like kind of forces you to learn things that maybe you didn't even know, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and there's always, you know, and, and, and also, you know. A lot of times, especially like, you know, if you're teaching like young or inexperienced writers, it's helpful to go back to basics for yourself sometimes. Right. Just like, and so teaching the basics, it's like, oh yeah, that's why you do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you asked that question. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it can definitely be very helpful to like, especially when you're in the weeds, you know, mm -hmm. and you're really like just obsessing over like a, one paragraph or, you know, one right. line of dialogue or whatever. And then it can be kind of helpful to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Definitely. Definitely. So you're having some really interesting conversations on your podcast, Old Heads. Oh, yeah. And I've been especially thinking about a conversation that you had with writer Al Letson talking mm -hmm. about how um, the black imagination is always policed. And he was talking about how a lot of Black creatives end up policing themselves. So I was thinking about how, you know, women also do this and mm -hmm. LGBTQ creatives, disabled creatives, et cetera. And I think that when marginalized voices are trying to create in a society with so much white supremacy and misogyny and mm -hmm. ableism, they can really end up limiting their creativity, like even subconsciously. So how do you think creatives can break free of those limitations? I think they just have, you just, they just have to do the work and, and understand too that in doing that work, you're a part of a tradition of resistance. I mean, you know, um, it, 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 it's interesting, you know, to be in a culture in which you're, you know, viewed as a minority, which is a term that drives me crazy, <laughs> especially, since I, especially since I live in Atlanta. That's yeah. And it's black. <laughs> but yeah, you're like ah, uh, not um, really, not so much. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I I think a lot of times um, for people in marginalized groups, we we, we spend a lot of our time self censoring to make other people feel more comfortable. And I, mm -hmm. I, and I do think that as you grow as an artist, you know, hopefully the courage to speak your truth and to tell your story uh, emboldens you. Right. Um, 
because you know the last thing you want to do is is um you know transition to the other side without having without ever having the opportunity to be your fullest self so I would always encourage people it's like you know be your fullest self be your fullest creative self you know explore the boundaries of your imagination. Don't let anyone tell you what stories you can or can't tell. Don't let anyone try to dictate what your narrative is. Tell your own damn narrative. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. think so much of that is like subconscious too, because I oh, mean, yeah, definitely. you know, I, I like, I, I write a lot of like YA young adult um, stuff. So I, you know, I, I see this kind of trope of in young adult books, like the, mm. you know, the, the female character that's like, oh, well, I'm not like other girls. <laughs> and you're like, you know, I have to be like, you know, shooting yeah. arrows and kicking people's ass all the time. Like, it's no. just, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, it, it makes me feel like, like, uh, okay, that only way, like, it's acceptable to have a female protagonist is to make her more like masculine. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and this idea that 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 somehow in in being, you know, female, there's an automatic limitation, which is bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't I don't think in terms of our individual identities, how, however you identify, I don't think any of us has really really explored the boundaries of who we are and who we can be. So, um, right. yeah, and so don't let anyone set set those param- you know don't let anyone set those parameters for you. Right. Right. So, so one of your kind of main focuses in developing new work is amplifying unique and diverse voices. So mm-hmm. as artists and creatives, like how can we encourage creative work from a lot of different perspectives? I think we have to demand it. I mm-hmm. think we really have to demand it. Um, you know, the, there are so many stories and so many perspectives that I would like to see on stages and, and on screens. Um, that I don't get a chance to see. Um, and, you know, things, you know, things are changing. You know, the, the interesting thing with, with, with television or, or streaming platforms, it's not really TV anymore, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but with, you know, serial narratives mm-hmm. is, uh, I feel like for the first time since, you know, since I've been alive and I'm almost 50, I, I can like literally like turn on a streaming service and watch a narrative from just about anywhere in the world. yeah. And that's amazingly powerful, and I think potentially transformative. And I, and I think people want to see stories other than stories that that they directly connect with. Um, I'm a strong believer that um, specificity and difference make provocative art. Yeah. Um, so I want to see some different stories and hear some different stories and see some different perspectives that personally excites me yeah and I mean I I think it's it's kind of like the more specific you get and uh, with you know your perspective and your story like I feel like that that's when it really gets like universal and like agreed by relating to other people's specific stories we can kind of like see the connections in humanity, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, we, we definitely need to get past the idea that universality is, is something that's really about gearing a narrative towards a dominant audience. That's BS. Right, um, right. Like you said, universality comes from specificity. Mm-hmm. And the more specific and more detailed uh, and interior it, it is, the more universal the narrative is. And I think the more people that it'll resonate with. 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, when you're learning poetry, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's all about being specific with your imagery and, you know, not just saying, oh, I was sad, but like giving someone an image that makes them feel sad. So I I feel like the art is in the details, I think, you know, in the details, without a doubt. So for those of us who are, you know, white or male or cisgendered or able-bodied, etc., how do you think we can be better allies in the artistic space? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, sir. I really don't. <laughs> um, I think that, um, you know, people, you know, and, 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 and it's a tricky thing because I think about this a lot as a cisgendered male, knowing mm-hmm. that there's, there's a power imbalance that gives me a certain amount of privilege. Right. Um, I, I think when you start dealing with issues of equity and especially equity, even more so than, than diversity, you mm-hmm. have to accept the fact that in, in order for things to change, you have to give up some power. Right. Um, and that's something that I always have to contend with as a male identifying artist. So, you know, if I'm working on a project, I'm going to always, you know, petition to have some um, female artist in, in the room because right. I feel like I would benefit from their perspective, one. And also um, I want my work to be a place where different perspectives are uh, in collaboration, are honored and mm-hmm. have a voice. So um, yeah, you just have to, you know, if you have, if you have a privilege or a type of privilege, um, you know, no matter how you identify, uh, I think you, you have to, you know, ask yourself, you know, if, if I'm really about, you know, equity and diversity, am I willing to give up power? Right, that, right. The answer, the answer might be no, and that's fine. <laughs> but, you know, but, but, but knowing that giving up power is a part of making things more equitable, I think is, a, is, a, is, is an important realization to have. Right. I mean, I, I always think it's not, not even necessarily giving up power, but maybe giving up a certain platform or, you know, like, I feel like there, there's enough room for all the stories in the world. So like, if you want to write a story and publish it, like you can indie publish, like you can do that. So, but like maybe the big five publishers, like maybe they need to like, you know, diversify their publishing list. Like, you know, a lot of it is about sharing space and knowing how to share space. Right. Um, and, and again, I, I think that's challenging. I think it's especially challenging for people who are, who are, you know, who were born and raised in this country, which is a very individualistic country. Right. So, um, you know, the idea of sharing anything does not come easy for people born and bred in America. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, uh, so, and, I mean, and which is also why uh, some of the inequities are so strong in this country, because people aren't willing to do that. But right. But yeah, I think, you know, learning how to share space, learning how to value other people's differences, I think, and and also knowing that you can benefit from hearing other people's narratives, I think um, are great places to start. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. So, so what are you working on right now? Oh, gosh. Uh, So, so I'm, I'm reading a lot of plays in preparation for, uh, uh, helping um, Matt Turney at um, Theatrical Outfit and helping all the other folks that we collaborate with find a, a, a season mm-hmm. in 
in this time of of, of pandemic. Right. So <laughs> are you guys talking. doing like a virtual season? With, so, with so, so we have we have three virtual offerings in the spring, and we're all hoping everywhere on planet mm-hmm. Earth that we'll be able <laughs> to at least have small houses sometime in the fall of, of uh, 2021. Right. But, you know, a lot of that is still kind of up, up in the air. So um, that, you know, that's the day job. So that's the main thing that I'm working on. But, but you know, I also started Hush Harbor Lab with, with uh, Mina McIntyre. And we've been doing like, a lot of new play development workshops. And I'm, you know, st- still writing and working on my o- own work as well. So um, and also teaching this semester, too, online, which I hate. Right, man, you're you're always. I feel like you're always doing like a million things. I I you know, but 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 again, it's like you know, I I I spent most of my life as an artist, and it's hard for me to ha- just have one gig. It's just really hard. Right. It's really hard. Um. So yeah, I I always have multiple gigs all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's how I am too. Because well, I'm like most of my artistic stuff. I'm not really like getting paid to do right now. <laughs> so like, you know, and then I have the stuff that I am actually getting paid for, like, you know, on my web content that I'm writing and blog posts for people. Right. And, you know, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, like, I, I feel like a lot of artistic people are just doing a lot of different things all the time. <laughs> you kind of got to, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think being being on this path, I, I, and I accepted this a long time ago. My parents still don't understand it, <laughs> but you know, it, it's not something you retire from. <laughs> right, right. So it's like I'm going to be doing this until I drop dead somewhere, and I'm cool with that. You know, as long as it's work that I enjoy doing. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm. I feel like I'm going to be 90s, being like, "Here's my new novel." You know, <laughs> Here's my novel. Come get it. Come read it. <laughs> uh. So what what like books or TV shows, movies, plays, music are you really into right now? Right now. So let me see. What what did I just finish? Oh, I was just watching TV. You know, I I I, I jumped back on that zombie bandwagon with those Walking Dead shows. I don't know why, because they were just <laughs> on. They were just Oh really man, on. I used to really be into those until until uh what happened to Glenn. And then I oh my God. stopped I'm still watching. <laughs> I'm still traumatized, like that 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 darn that darn bat. Um, it was my favorite. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I got back on that, you know, just just really for for something to watch. But um, um, I just saw this amazing film, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah by Shaka King, that is absolutely stunning. It's like oh yeah, the- I've heard I've heard people like a lot of people talk about that. It is stunning. So that's the last really good film that I saw. Where um, where is that streaming again? It's on, it's on HBO Max. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, I think I think I'm gonna go back and watch um, um, this may destroy you, um, Michael Coel show on HBO because it was just so fucking brilliant. Oh uh, yeah, I heard I heard that too. Oh, she's just a brilliant actor and a brilliant writer. I, I just have a lot of respect for her. Um, so yeah, those are the two things. I'm I'm, I'm reading this uh, science fiction novel by Sa- Samuel Delaney called Triton, and that's really cool. <laughs> um, oh, that is cool. And I I, I actually want to because this is coming on HBO Max soon. I want to go back and read Dune again before the movie comes out. Oh right, yeah. yeah. So that's next on the list. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. 
So, okay, I have kind of a big question that I ask everyone. Um, okay. So why do you think art is important? Oh. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a big question, sir. Um, <laughs> I can only speak from, 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 from the perspective of, of narrative and story. And mm-hmm. I think it applies to other arts as well, but I'm just thinking from my own vantage point. Um, I think it helps us make sense of the world. Right. Um, I think it helps all of us make sense of the world. Uh, the practitioner and the person that's witnessing or consuming the art. Um, it's a way that we connect with our deepest passions and our deepest fears. Um, yeah. And we, I, I think we needed to, to remain human and humane. Right. Yeah, yeah, everyone, you know, it makes me think of like Joseph Campbell and like yeah, the, yeah, the hero's the journey, hero's journey, heroes with a thousand faces. It, 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 I mean, it's like you know, art, art and story—they really give us the maps on how we live our lives in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, it's necessary for our survival. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, where can people find you and your work? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Hush Harper has a website. Oh my gosh, and I'm gonna totally screw it up because we just went live. Like maybe it's okay. I, I'll link to all of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Findcreativeexpression.com. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, sir, I'll drop the link in uh, for Hush Harper Lab. But but you know, we we just went live literally a couple of days ago, and so we'll uh, I'll be post we'll be posting the workshop information about that um i'm 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 you know especially with the new job i'm thinking you know because you know you know i'm I'm on facebook but that's personal stuff that's not professional stuff um (laughs) but i i I am considering getting a um a twitter account and an ig account just strictly for work so you know oh you should do that Sarah, it'll make me do. But I always, <laughs> I always love seeing the stuff you post on Facebook, though. It's like you, you post really good stuff. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that, uh, and and I'm probably gonna gonna do it within the next couple of months. So just Google my name, and th- there'll probably be an IG or a Twitter that pops up within the next three or four months. Awesome. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you on like a few weeks and be like, okay. hey, where's where's the Instagram? I mean, it's, it's coming, <laughs> maybe possibly. <laughs> awesome well thanks so much for for joining me on the podcast i know you have like a million things going on (laughs) so i really appreciate it i was able to schedule this i get a chance to talk to you it's been a while yeah it has been a while it has been a while uh yeah well thanks again no good to talk that was really a lot of fun cool cool i had so much fun catching up with a dying and i hope you guys found it interesting as well by the way when, when i said Oh, your bio is so long. You're legit. I was not saying that all the other guests that I've had on the show are not legit. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. Literally every single person I've had on the show, I think, is amazing. Coming up on the next episode, I'm going to be talking to Steve from the YouTube channel The Lawn Gnome. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to him. So definitely tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Find Creative Expression podcast. 
please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. You can find me on Instagram at Sarah E. Crawford or YouTube.com slash Sarah Crawford. Also find me on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Sarah Crawford to support the podcast for just a dollar a month. And that's Sarah, S-A-R-A, without an H. I hope you've been inspired today, and I'll see you in two weeks for the next podcast.